Well, this is Good Friday, and there is a long-standing tradition in the church that we celebrate this day, and uh, it comes uh, to us with a lot of significance. Uh, it's a day that's filled with goodness for us as Christians as we consider the cross and all that it means for us as believers, what Christ has done for us on this day. It's a good day uh, for us. But this day was not good for him. It was not a good day for him. And I think it's important for us as a church, uh, just as Christians, to look at the moment of the death of Christ. And we, I think we can often sort of live in our lives without really understanding and really comprehending the reality of what Christ has done for us. And so what we want to do tonight is just look at Christ's sufferings this evening the Bible is full of references to the crucifixion. You know that. If you've been a Christian any length of time, the Bible is full of references to the crucifixion. But tonight I want to focus on one that may be pretty familiar to you, and that is the book, in the book of Psalms, Psalm 22. So take your Bibles and open them there to Psalm 22. And as you're turning there, I want to ask you to do me a favor and to keep your Bible open while we go through this psalm. We're going to try to cover the entire psalm this evening. It's long. It's 31 verses. And as you know, if you've been in our church any length of time, we never do this. <laughs> we always go very slowly through text. But I, I want to cover the entire thing because I think as we look at this entire thing, there's no good place to break it off. Uh, there's so much here that we need to hear it all in one sitting. So we're going to walk through this entire psalm. And it, it is an important psalm for us. It's a messianic psalm. And it was written by David, the king of Israel. And the title there you can see is for the choir director, and then there's some big Hebrew words, and it says a psalm of David. He wrote the psalm, and no doubt David had many trials in his life. We shouldn't be surprised that David writes a psalm about pain and suffering. And yet, this psalm, I don't believe, is really from David's heart. I think David is acting in this text as a prophet. He's speaking to us, but he's speaking to us from the mouth of his future son, Jesus. And so, as we walk through this psalm, what I'd like for us to do is get some insight into the sufferings of Jesus Christ. This is an amazing psalm because we, in this text, we hear from Christ himself. That's a stunning thing to think about. We hear what he was thinking and what he was feeling in the moments coming up to his death and after. And so, as we unpack the psalm, my prayer is that we would hear the heart of Christ uh, even in my prayer, I said we would hear his words, that he would speak to us. And I think in a very real sense, that's what's happening in Psalm 22. And so just stay with me as we go through it. It's important uh, that you see the whole text. And so if you're taking notes, the first point tonight is Christ's unique spiritual suffering. Now, this entire psalm is actually one giant prayer to God. He's actually just praying to his father in the moment of his death. And, it's, and it is through David, but it is from Christ. He is praying to God as he's suffering and giving up his life. No one ever suffered like Jesus suffered. And particularly, no one ever suffered spiritually the way that he did. Obviously, his, his physical sufferings were intense, but they don't hold a candle to what he endured spiritually. And in this psalm, it starts out with this, these incredibly familiar words in verse 1. He starts with his internal trials, and then he moves outward to his external trials. And so the very first point here is point A, internal abandonment. 
Listen to verse one. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is crying out to God in the moment of his death in absolute horror. He calls out, my God. He's affirming that he belongs to God, that God is the one God of the universe. He affirms God's place, and he affirms even that he is turning to God in this moment. He's not turning away from God. He's turning to God, and he's pursuing God with his heart. And yet he's crying out in anguish because he knows that the Father has abandoned him. It's an amazing statement. Why have you forsaken me? Why, he asks, why am I being forsaken? Why are you turning from me? And the question is a good one, isn't it? It's a good one for him to ask because why? Jesus has been perfect. His entire life has been holy. He's never sinned. He's never done anything wrong his entire life. He's been absolutely perfect in his life. He had the right to step into the throne room of God. He should have had communion with God freely. There was nothing in him that would have ever made God turn his back on him. And yet, here he is suffering this torment. And this sentence is completely unique to Christ. Jesus is the only one who could say this. No one else can ever say this. In fact, the Bible says the exact opposite of us as Christians. In Hebrews 13, 5, God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never leave you or forsake you. He tells us, He speaks to us and he tells us that we are safe forever. This will never happen to us. That's a stunning promise. You you know this feeling if you've gone through trial and pain. You know what this feels like. There's that moment when you come to the very rock bottom of your sufferings and you look up and God hasn't left you. He's still there. He hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't forsaken you. He's loving and he's sovereign over you. But Jesus, he got to the very bottom of this moment, the very bottom of his soul. And in all of that torment, Jesus looked up and his father looked away. He was alone. God had forsaken him. If you look at verse 1 again, he says, far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. He says, God does not hear him as he groans with the suffering of what he's enduring. This word here, this groaning is used of someone who's writhing in pain. They're crying out in their suffering, and yet God is not there. He's forsaken him. And in verse 2, listen, he says, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. He says he's crying out to his father day and night and no one is answering him. He's abandoned. There's no rest for him. There's no answer from his father as he asks for help. Jesus is truly alone. And then look in verses three through five. It says, yet you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. He acknowledges that God is not like this with anybody else. Everybody else that trusts in God, they turn to him and he saves them. He answers the prayers of all the fathers who have come before him. God has always been faithful to be with his people and yet here is Christ alone, disappointed, crying out to God, but forsaken. 
And so we see Jesus here in his spiritual suffering. He's suffering and he feels the weight of sin on himself. He understands what's happening to him. And at the very center of his heart, as he looks up to God, there's no one there. God has forsaken him. There is no communion that he enjoyed. There's nothing. God has turned from him. But from here, he moves out now. This is point B, external abandonment. Notice in verse six, he says, I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Compared to everyone else around him, Jesus says, I'm being treated like a worm. I'm I'm treated with reproaches and disgust from everyone who's around me. Remember, at the point of the cross, when he comes to the cross, Jesus is completely isolated. He's come to the end of his life. Everyone has abandoned him. He's been tried by the Romans, and the Jews have participated in his trial. He's been convicted. The disciples have all left him. Peter's denied him, his closest confidant. They've all run away in fear, and he's left alone to endure the cross by himself. He's been reproached by everyone around him. And the Jewish people to whom he had come as their Messiah, they've rejected his place. They've turned away from even that office. And in verse seven, here you notice they mock him. It says, all who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. The Jewish people around him, as they're dying, they do three things. They mock him verbally. They scoff at his suffering as he's perishing on the cross. They make faces at him. And they shake their heads in rejection and mockery. And so he hangs there alone, abandoned by God. And everyone around him is making fun of him as he suffers. And if you just listen to the mocking in verse 8, it should sound familiar. It's actually the exact words that the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders say in Matthew 27, 43. They mocked him for claiming to be the son of God. They made fun of him because he was claiming to be the son of God. And they said, if you are God's son, God would never abandon you to death. It's not real. And so they mock his spiritual status. They mock his faith. They even mock his sufferings as he's bleeding to death there. And Jesus becomes the shameful laughingstock of the entire nation of Israel. But it's fascinating. Jesus doesn't stop trusting God. Look at verses 9 and 10. He actually defends his faith in God. He says, yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. It's amazing. He says, even from the time when I was a baby, I've trusted you. I've been dependent on you from the moment that I came into the world. I was always depending on you. There's never been a time when Christ's faith had failed. He was always trusting in God and depending on him. Even from the place of his infancy, he had always done that. And yet here he is alone. The one person who had truly fulfilled that command to trust in God and he hangs abandoned, mocked and shamed, rejected by his people and humiliated in his sufferings. Jesus is totally abandoned by God and he's abandoned by the people. But his suffering doesn't stop at his spiritual sufferings. 
It doesn't stop there. And it doesn't stop at the external abandonment of the nation and of his friends. This is point two, Christ's physical suffering. Jesus also suffered physically. In verses 12 through 21, there are three pictures of Christ's physical suffering. This is his wrestling with God as his life is being taken from him, as he's perishing. And each of these three cycles identify more and more of his sufferings. In verse 11, you hear this. He repeats his prayer again. He says, be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. He prays again. He says, God, don't be distant from me. I'm alone. There's no one to help me. I have no friends. There's no one who can help me in this moment. And then he continues on with his sorrow, starting in verse 12. And this is point A, enemies and brutality. In verse 12, he says this, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. The area of Bashan in Israel is what we know of as the Golan Heights now. And it's, it's an area where there's a lot of precipitation. So the grass would grow tall there. And so the cows would eat on the mountaintops. And the grass was so plentiful that the cattle grew very large. They were big. And, and these bulls that were on the hill were the largest in the region. And if you've ever been around an angry bull or you've ever watched a YouTube video of an angry bull, they're dangerous, aren't they? They're scary. They're large, unthinking, furious, angry animals, and they just want to hurt something. And that's the image of the Romans who are surrounding Jesus. They whipped him, and as Stephen read for us, they put a crown of thorns on him. They slapped him and beat him and spit on him, and they have no mercy. There's no pity for him. In verse 13, they're compared to starving lions. They open their mouths, bent on destruction. They're full of anger. They want blood. That's what they want. They're hungry for the blood of Jesus. It's a terrifying picture. In verse 14, look what he says. He says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. He's describing his sufferings here. His life's blood is being poured out of him. He's been flogged brutally and he's beginning to bleed out on the cross. His limbs are hurting. He's aching as he suffers. His heart, he says, is like wax. It's heavy. It's struggling to pump blood into his system. He feels the weight of his chest as he tries to breathe. He has no strength. And in verse 15, he says, my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. His, his mouth is so dry because he's so dehydrated as his body is bleeding out. It says, and you lay me in the dust of death. This is the image of death creeping upon Jesus. He's feeling it come upon him. His heart can't pump enough blood to keep him alive and he feels death coming close to him. And it gets worse. This is point B, enemies and crucifixion. In verse 16, he describes what it is that he's feeling. He says, dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. 
He compares the religious leaders of Israel to a wild pack of dogs. He says, they surround me and they are attacking me. They're hungry for his death. They growl, they bark in anger. They come after him. And he's totally helpless at this point, isn't he? And the death that he's dying is specific. This is one of the reasons why I think this text is clearly about Christ. It says, they pierced my hands and my feet. He is being crucified. There's nails through his extremities. And now look at verse 17. It says, I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. He can count all of his bones because he's hanging there and all of his joints are coming out of socket. He feels every bone and every tendon stretching out. Every joint is hurting now. He can't hold himself up and the weight of his body hangs against the nails and his back bleeding against the rough wood of the cross. And in all of this, what do the people around him do? It says they stare at him, verse 17. And then verse 18, what do they do? There's no pity, right? They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. They take his clothing, his outer garment, and they cast lots for it. In the Bible, you couldn't take a man's outer garment as pledge because you had to have that to survive. You had to have that outer garment to survive. When they cast lots for his outer garment, what they're saying is he is certainly going to die. That's what he's saying. That's what they're saying when they cast lots for his cloak. He's not coming back. He won't need an outer garment. Death is coming for him. And then point C, enemies and death, in verses 19 through 21. It's amazing. He appeals again to God. It's a stunning thing. He says, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. He's praying. He appeals to God. His body's nailed to the cross. His joints are coming apart. His heart is stopping beating. He's terribly dehydrated, but he's not rejecting God. He's playing, he's praying to God for help. And if you just look, he says, deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. He says, save my life. And that that word only there is his deserted life. He knows he's alone and he says, save my life. The one thing that is left, I don't have anything else, save me from the power of the dog the power of the one who is coming to take him. He knows he's coming to an end. He's dying. But he pleads with God to help him at that moment, to deliver his life. Look at verse 21. It says, save me from the lion's mouth. Now the lions are on him. And from the horns of the wild oxen, The lions come, it's the moment of death, the horns are there, he's being gored, he's dying. The angry bulls are back, and his life is being destroyed. And he feels it, death is coming. And then you have this phrase at the end of verse 21 that's so crazy. Look what he says. He says, from the horns of the wild oxen, what? You answer me. (laughs) What is that? 
What is that? Why does he answer him? What's the answer? What's going on here? This is, it isn't fair. Death's already come. He's expiring at that moment. The lion is biting him. He's impaled on the horns of the bull. The the wickedness of the Romans and the Jews have done their work against his life. He is dead. And as he stands on the cliff of death and as he falls off of it, God answers. God answers after death. What is happening? It's true. The death is complete. He's been abandoned spiritually by his people. He's totally alone, forsaken by God, surrounded by angry people, suffering untold physical pains in his body, nailed to a cross, knowing the weight of all that is on him. And he's still praying. And death comes to him, and in his very last thought, he prays and dies, and God answers. He's dead. It's done. His life is gone. And it is finished, he says. It is finished. But what is it that God answered him with? This is point three, because the psalm goes on. It doesn't stop here, and that's such a praise. In verse 22, look what happens. He's speaking again. It's in the first person. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. He's talking. He's dead, but he's talking. Where is he? Death is not victorious. He's speaking in triumph. How do we know that it's him speaking? How do we know that? Because the author of Hebrews quotes this verse in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, as the words of Christ himself. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. What's happening? Everything is dark and death has come and he falls off the cliff. And where does he find himself in the next moment? Where is he? He's in heaven. He's in heaven. And he's surrounded by the assembly of the saints and by the angels. And it says now, what is he doing? He speaks about the faithfulness of his God. Verse 23, it says, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. All you seed of Israel, praise God. Why? Why would Jesus call all the people of heaven to praise God? Because what has just happened has fulfilled God's plan for all of history. Everyone there is praising God. At the moment that Jesus enters heaven, everything is done. It's finished. And the salvation of his people is 100% complete. And look at verse 24. This is amazing. It says, For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him, But when he cried to him for help, he heard. God was not despising his afflictions. He didn't mock with the others. He didn't hide his face from him. Instead, God heard his prayer. God heard his plea for his life. But you might say, well, that's odd. He died. How did God hear his plea for his life? How did that happen? 
How has God heard him if he died? The answer is that God did not allow the sins that God had put on Jesus to hold him. The payment price was complete. At the moment that Jesus gave up his life, it was paid in full. Everything was done. It was paid. And suddenly there in the midst of the assembly, Jesus stands. He's worshiping God because it's finished and God has heard him and he has entered heaven as the triumphant king, the one who has truly died for the sins of his people, that every sin is paid in full and he is in the presence of his father. And so heaven sings around the victorious Christ. But it doesn't stop there. In verses 25 through 31, we have the last point, Christ's unique mission. So the question I have is why? Why all of this suffering? Why the abandonment? Why the forsaking of Christ? Why the death at the hands of such evil people? And the answer is fascinating. In in verse 25, Jesus again praises He says, from you comes my praise in the great assembly. In other words, now God is praising his own son for what he's done. And Jesus says, I will pay my vows before those who fear him. In other words, I will fulfill what I am called to do. God is praising Christ and Christ is praising him. And they're back restored again to that place that they had before he came into the world. But in verse 26, look what he says. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. What Jesus says is that those afflicted people will come and will be satisfied in knowing him. They'll be satisfied. The ones who are afflicted by their sin will come to him and they will be satisfied in knowing the forgiveness they have received from him. In verse 27, it says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. He tells us that all the kingdoms of the world will gather together and worship Christ because of what he's fulfilled, because of what he's done. They will turn to the Lord and the nations will worship God through Jesus. And then in verses 28 and 29, notice he says, for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive, the ones who can't save their own lives will come to him and receive life from him. And they will come to him in worship and they will worship him forever. Then look at verse 30, it's amazing. It says, posterity will serve him. That that word is the word seed. His seed will serve him. And it will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. One generation will come and hear and another generation will tell again and declare the righteousness of Christ. Who is this who has heard this message and who has come to Christ? That's us. (laughs) That's us. That's you here if you're a Christian. Someday you will be in heaven and you will be worshiping Jesus in this exact same way. We from all the nations have come to him. We have heard of what he has done. So each generation will tell the next generation what has happened. 
And if you look at verse 31, the psalm closes here with what God says. It says, they will come and will declare his righteousness. They will declare not their own. (laughs) They will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. What is it? What's the psalmist saying? What's David saying? That Christ has done everything for his people. Everything that you need tonight to go to heaven forever, Jesus did once and for all. You cannot add anything to what he did here. No act of righteousness, nothing you can do will ever add anything to the sufferings of Christ. He has performed it. He purchased our salvation with his obedience unto death. He bled for your soul and he took your death on himself. So this psalm starts in utter loneliness, starts in darkness, suffering, horror. Christ is alone. He's abandoned and forsaken by his father, dying and surrounded by vicious, demonic, and human enemies. But the psalm closes with Jesus surrounded by an almost innumerable crowd of people worshiping him for what he's done. And that's really all of our stories, isn't it? (laughs) He did this for us. He took our sin, our weight of evil that we carry on ourselves, the knowledge of our guilt and our shame, and he took it onto himself. And the Bible says that he was crushed for our iniquities. And he did it for his father to bring glory and honor to his father so that we forever would worship him and that he would receive the glory that he rightfully deserves. So Good Friday is about the crucifixion. But it's Good Friday because Jesus is in heaven. (laughs) He's in heaven. He's with his father. And now not only spiritually, but he's been raised from the dead and he stands at the right hand of his father waiting for a time when all authority in heaven and on earth will be his, that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We need to remember. We need to remember. We have to remember that he suffered. We have to remember the cost of what it took to purchase our souls. We have to remember that he was forsaken by his father so that we can say, I will never be forsaken. And so that we could join the heavenly chorus even this evening and give him praise and glory and honor that he rightfully deserves. And so tonight we want to remember. We need to remember this, don't we? Not just tonight, but all the time. We have to remember his suffering and death in our place. And we have to remember it in the way that he prescribes. So we're going to take communion. What is communion? Communion is a remembering of this moment. It's a proclaiming of what happened that day in real space and time outside the city of Jerusalem on a real dusty hill. When Christ came into the world and he bled to death for the sins of his people. 
It's a remembering that he was forsaken for our sakes. So the band's going to come, and I'm going to pray, and the men will come forward with the elements. And what I would encourage you to do is, if there's something in your heart where you know you're not believing these things this moment, I would encourage you, if you know there's a sin in your life, confess it. Bring it to him. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 1.15 that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world to save sinners like us. And so if you're carrying a sin with you now, bring it to him. What happened there happened for sinners like us. Confess your sin and trust that he died for it once and for all in your place. And obviously, this is a remembrance for those who are praising him with the heavenly chorus, right? It's for those who know him. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, and you know you're not a Christian, maybe you've been going to church your whole life, but you don't believe this was for you. Please don't take communion. It's not for you. Come to Christ and trust that he died for your sins that day. Believe that reality and let it fill your soul. Don't take communion. Just trust Christ. But for those of us who are, what a blessed time to remember him, isn't it? And so let's pray We'll ask the band to come and the men will come forward and then we'll take communion together. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we, Lord, it's frightening in some ways to even step onto the ground around the cross. Lord, to think about these things, Lord, they really happened in space and time. And Lord, all of my sins, all of them were there. can't even conceive of the weight of the shame that he bore. That you forsook him for my sake. Lord, not only for mine, but for everyone who would trust in him. So Lord, tonight as we remember his death, Lord, as we remember the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood, Lord, as we remember his isolation and his loneliness. And Lord, as we remember his victory at the moment of death, Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts with faith in these things. Lord, that we would trust in him. Lord, that we would abandon any hope for our own righteousness to get to heaven. Lord, that we would trust in the finished work of Christ. Lord, we thank you that it is finished for us. Lord, that all of our sins are forgiven. Lord, that we can walk in absolute freedom. Lord, that there is now no condemnation for us because all of our condemnation fell on him. Lord, that you see us now as though we lived his perfect life. Lord, what a stunning thing the cross is. So Lord, tonight, I pray that you would help us. Help us to remember this truth. Lord, help us to walk by faith in the Son of God who loves us and who gave himself up for us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for him. In his name we pray. Amen.